Welcome to The Frontline, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of sales leadership. Whether you're a sales leader yourself or someone who wants to learn more about building an elite sales team, we bring you the insights and strategies from today's top sales leaders living, working, and leading from the front line. Welcome to The Frontline. I'm your host, Sean Buxton, Head of Sales Enablement at The Sales Collective. I'm excited to have as our guest today, David Osborne, currently Chief Sales Officer at Insightly, former VP of both Enterprise and Corporate Sales at Qualtrics, and recently named by Demandbase as one of the top 25 sales execs to learn from in 2023. Here to share his leadership knowledge today on The Frontline. Welcome, David. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you. Um, Tell everybody in the audience where, where we're talking to you from today. So I'm based just outside of Salt Lake City in Utah. Okay. And is it it's summertime out there, right? Like you guys are in full-blown summer. Are you still kind of still in? Yeah, spring and full bloom. We, yeah, spring and full bloom. So we, we had quite the winter, uh, historic winter, I think, as many people saw and hopefully was able to participate in. Just epic amounts of snowfall. And uh, after just a really protracted winter. We're really excited to finally see the, the flowers blossom and start to get some good weather. So uh, I think we're fast track. I mean, by next week we'll be in the eighties and we'll be already at summertime. So happy, to, happy um, to finally get some more sunlight in our life, I think. Yeah. Well, I've been out there a couple of times as we discussed uh, earlier and man, it's just so beautiful out there. I love to get out there whenever I can, whether it's winter or summer or spring, cause you always got those beautiful mountains out there. And so uh, it's a great place for sure. Uh, let's jump right into it. Uh, you know, I've given you a series of questions that our audience likes to hear from and, and likes to hear experts like yourself answer. So we'll start with the first one. What first sparked your interest in sales leadership and how did you get started in the field? Yeah, well, look, I think like so many others, I stumbled into sales, right? I, I don't know that any kid grows up wanting to be a sales leader when they grow up, right? I mean, you want to be an astronaut, you want to be a fireman, but kind of stumbled into it, right? When I was in college, I aspired, I studied finance, economics. I wanted to get into banking uh, and got a job, just a part-time job in college, just trying to pay the bills. And, you know, turns out I was pretty good at it, was having some success, making some good money. And by the time I was graduating college, I had a decision to make, right? And was interviewing with some of the big banks out East, um, got a few offers, but uh, at that point, had started at a company called Qualtrics, uh, which is just based down the road here in Utah. And it started to really take off. And I kind of looked at myself and I said, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, those, those firms are always going to be there, but I may never have a chance to see a wave like this again. So I put all my chips on the table, uh, jumped in on Qualtrics, and the rest is history. Nice. And after Qualtrics, you're currently at Insightly, right? That's right. So I spent uh, over 12 years at Qualtrics, uh, one of the original employees, a uh, member of the sales leadership team there. You know, I was fortunate to see that business grow from less than 10 million in revenue when I started to north of a billion in ARR by the time I had left. We had a couple or exits along the way. We were acquired by SAP in 2018. So spent a few years in the SAP family. Uh, and then in early 2021, we spun out an IPO. So you know, I think having seen every phase of corporate maturity, right, from the startup to working at a giant German multinational public company, like 
to me, the most fun and fulfillment that I had in my career was at that hyper growth, trying to figure out how to scale phase. So uh, as I started to contemplate my next chapter, that's where I was looking to get back into was is building again and uh, mm. you know, was introduced to Insightly and have been there for the past year and a half. Tell us about your role there. You're chief sales officer, correct? That's right. So um, I have responsibility for, for global revenue at Insightly, which entails uh, most of the go-to-market functions. So um, obviously AEs, SDRs, RevOps, sales engineers, uh, renewals, essentially everything except marketing. I have, a, I have a, a marketing team and a CMO that I partner with on the marketing front. And what size org are we talking about here? So in the past year, we've actually had some pretty considerable growth. So uh, we have more than 3x the size of the sales capacity in the past year, uh, which is really kind of phenomenal growth, I think, when you consider everything that's happened in the macroeconomic environment. But uh, really, really grown the team. We're sitting at around 75 individuals in total. Okay, awesome. And as you, you know, you talk about your transition into leadership, you know, I think a lot of our listeners want to know, like, what does it take? to to be that frontline manager to get that first promotion like what kind of qualities is senior sales leadership looking at yeah well i mean look i think first and foremost you got to demonstrate mastery of your current position and role right i mean if i i think if you're not hitting numbers or having success in whatever your current role is it's you're going to be hard pressed to find a promotion no matter what you're trying to do i think in sales we have both the blessing and the curse of having pretty clear success metrics, right? Uh, of whether you're winning or you're not, right? Are you hitting quotas or are you not? But I think, look, if, if you aspire to get into leadership, uh, number one, like I said, make sure you're hitting your numbers. I think number two, and this is an often underrated one, is make those intentions known, right? I think uh, I, I personally made the mistake early in my career where I kind of assumed that I'd let my, my work do the talking and mm. that if I had enough success that people would notice that and promotions would come my way. And sometimes that's not the case, right? I think talking to your direct manager or your leadership team and let them know what your ambitions are, both in the near term and long term, really helps. So when you're having that success and when those roles open up, they can keep you in mind. You can be top of mind versus getting lost uh, in the mess. So I think those are probably the two biggest things that I'd say for those that are looking to make that jump is kick butt at your job, and uh, and make sure that you're aligned with your your direct manager and in letting your your desires known. Yeah, and when you look back in your career, uh, if you think back to when you were first promoted to sales manager, were you given any kind of like, you know, coaching, sales manager specific training as you made the transition from individual contributor salesperson to sales manager? And if not, why do you think that is? It seems to be a pattern. Was I given training on from going from an IC to a, a leader? Yeah, from a seller uh, to now you're leading the team. Were you given any kind of training for that? Original at that time, no. Um, at that time, you know, it was, it was still working at a startup, very limited budgets, limited resources. It was, I mean, I think about my onboarding uh, at the time, and it was here's a computer and a phone, make stuff happen. Right. right, right. So I think, uh, and same thing with leadership, right? I think it, it was, you just kind of launched into it. Now, since, you know, in, in my years since, I've had the opportunity to have several different trainings and enablement, uh, uh, leadership enablement that I think has been extraordinarily helpful. Um, but, you know, the best piece of advice, Sean, that I had, you know, again, just 
been given a small team and said, hey, make something happen. When I was promoted mm-hmm. to be a leader, I was like so many made a player coach, uh, meaning that I had my I still had my own book of business that I had to look after. But I also had I can't remember it was three to five AEs that I was also responsible for. And mm-hmm. I, the best piece of advice that I was given, if that is something that you're facing, is keep in mind that you are still by far the best seller on your team. Meaning that a common misconception, a common mistake that early leaders make, especially if they're a player coach, is they dedicate all of their time to their people. And while I think that is good and I think there's a lot of benevolent intent there, uh, mm-hmm. by neglecting your book of business, you're essentially not investing in the best seller on the team, which is yourself. So right. more often than not, the the frontline leaders, the new frontline leaders that have the most success up front versus a more protracted success path are those that are really continuing to kick butt at their at managing their current book of business, crushing their personal quotas. And then hopefully, you know, those those others will, you know, continue to rise up. But, you know, more often than not, and I wish it weren't the case, you know, early leaders are still hitting 150 percent plus of their number and the rest of their team is just doing as much as they can. But your quota will make up for the rest of theirs. Yeah. And in. In your experience, not only in your own career, but watching others, do you think that's an effective strategy in an ideal situation? In the near term, right? I, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily aspire to say neglect your team. That's not nece- that's not my intention. That's not what I'm saying. I think what I'm saying is don't neglect your book of business because your quota and your ability to hit and exceed your quota as a first-time leader, if you still do have a book of business, is going to be really important. Just... And it's, no, I, I, wasn't, it's I, wasn't, I wasn't questioning like that strategy. I'm saying the player coach strategy because um, oh. I see that happen a lot. Putting somebody in that role versus just saying versus saying, OK, here you had one job before. Now we'd like to give you another job and keep your other job, too. And now you have two yeah. jobs. And by the way, don't disappoint us in either one. Uh, you know, show us what a great leader you're going to be because we're trusting you. That's why we gave you this promotion. But also keep showing us what a great salesperson you are you know, but do it in the same amount of time. <laughs> right. No, look, I, I I don't love it. I didn't love it at the time. And I'm sure those out there that are player coaches today hate it as well. Right. It's, it's one of the hardest jobs you can have in sales. And I'm telling you that really having yeah. held every job in sales from a SDR to a CRO, I've kind of seen and done it all. Being a player coach in the front line is about as hard a job as you could possibly have, I think. Yeah, so, I would agree no, with you. I, I don't I don't love it. I think it's also it's just one of those kind of economic factors, right? That uh, that you you manage with the finance team, right? I think CROs and CFOs are often kind of working through like how do we effectively grow and scale the team? And oftentimes the player coach model is a result of maybe the the finance team kind of pushing their will and trying to keep a certain level of unit unit economics in the business as you grow and scale. So yeah. it, it's it's one of those that have been around for a long time. Unfortunately, I, I don't know that it's going anywhere anytime soon, but um, but that's usually it's it's kind of unavoidable, especially when you're relatively early on. It's a startup phase and entering into that hyper growth loop. Yeah. And, and especially in a startup, I see it a lot more often. Um, I've seen it in some of the companies I worked at as well, and I've rarely seen it be successful without just that person just killing themselves. Right. You know, just yeah. doing doing a lot of a lot of extra time. Um, in the office above and beyond just your regular 40 hour week. And, and of course that's the best time for them to do that because 
they're excited. They want to get promoted. And so they, they kind of feel like, okay, I got to do this to prove myself. But, you know, it's interesting because it's the, our profession is the only profession in the world that I can think of that does that. You would never see um, Bill Belichick out there playing right. on the field and then running to the side to coach and then go playing on the field or, you know, uh, Tom Brady playing, then going to the side to coach. And, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen in any other profession I've noticed, but for some reason it happens a lot in ours. And so I wondered if you thought that that was something that you'd seen that had been successful. No, I, look, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think it's something that I, I like or would recommend, but it's sometimes it's a necessary evil in the business. Yeah. Um, but if you can avoid, like if, if you're in it, like I said, my advice is don't neglect your current quota. If you're not in it and you are a pure leader and you don't carry a book of business, I, I have maybe a tweaked sense of advice on that is make sure that you're jumping on as many meetings as you can. I think another common mistake that these leaders make when they lose their book is they're like, I'm going to let the AE go manage that call. And that's great. I think you should. And you need to you know, manage kind of your time and sponsorship accordingly. But again, it's like having those frontline managers joining as many sales calls as they can really helps that feedback loop with with reps as well in terms of improving we have things like gong and chorus that certainly help but just call me old school i think there's something to be said about you know joining as many of your your people's calls as you can and being as hands-on as possible i think frontline leaders that are hands-off consistently aren't hitting numbers so uh, being yeah. as hands-on and, and joining customer calls and working with your people as you can yeah i love that too because you know if you are there on the call you can help, right? And you can contribute. The customer sees that they're important enough for the manager to be on the call as well. And if we use some of these tools like Gong or Course, it's you're basically in a state of react reaction to what's already happened. Like the it's already the opportunity is gone, right? Uh, so uh, you can't impact it. So I'm totally on board with you there. Um, when you think about, you know, we talked a little bit about like the uh, CFO and the CRO and and uh, how they can see things from a different perspective. How do you balance the needs of your team? with the demands of the organization's like bottom line? How do you keep those two things in balance? Um, it is certainly, it's certainly something worth juggling, right? I think it is challenging. Uh, look, I, I've had the, the, uh, the benefit of having a lot of great partners on the finance team over the course of my career, right? And I think that as much uh, of a synergy and alignment that you can drive with them, the better. Um, but look, at the end of the day, sometimes maybe you don't have the, quite the budget uh, or, or the bandwidth to, to, to handle some of the near-term requests of your team and you're kind of trying to balance budgets, et cetera. To me, I, I'm a big believer in transparency as much as, that's, as, much as you can afford it, right? In okay. terms of if, if someone's asking for these resources and maybe we just don't have uh, the cash on hand to go get them, be upfront about it and just say, hey, listen, I would love to go invest in some really expensive enablement course, you know, outsource that, but we just don't have the bandwidth right now. So we're going to have to nail it, build that in house and then scale it, for example. Um, and just being pretty direct with people rather than leading them on. I think sometimes when we say, yeah, that sounds really good. We should look into it, but kind of hope that that request disappears is just really probably a immature way to approach it. Just, you know, I, I think manage expectations with the team um, Kind of, I think as much transparency as the finance team can give uh, the sales leadership or any of the other cross-functional leadership um, visibility as well is helpful so that they can have some empathy in terms of what they're going through in balancing the spend of the business. So, 
Yeah. You, you mentioned um, enablement in there. What is kind of your strategy or how do you foster a culture of continuous learning and development, continuous improvement? Because, you know, I've noticed that someone that's been in enablement and in sales my whole career, you know, I noticed that a lot of teams kind of feel like they arrive, right? We go to sales training once. Yeah. We get the, we get the sales training and then we go back and it's like, the, we're good, like in perpetuity forever, right? We're, we're good. How do you foster that culture of, Hey, we have to continue to sharpen our saw. I have to continue to train. So I think it starts with the hiring process. Like one of the characteristics that I look for in anybody on, on the teams uh, that I, that I manage is a natural curiosity, right? People that are lifelong learners uh, that are going out and constantly trying to sharpen their sword, whether it be professionally, personally, whatever that looks like. So I think if you're hiring those types of people, I mean, that's kind of one of the hardest parts, right? That's an often neglected thing when we're interviewing people. But if you're finding people that do have that natural intrinsic curiosity, I think that's a great start. I think the second element is uh, I'm a big believer in metrics uh, and instrumenting the business, right? Which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later on. But when you think about enablement, oftentimes uh, a big thing that is missed is the enablement team and the leadership team doesn't think about how are we going to measure and chart the progress of the team, right? What does success look like as measured by specific OKRs or MBOs? Um, So make sure that with whatever campaign, initiative, project you're looking to do, let's try to find a way to measure the, the health and success of that particular program. I think the third aspect is just maybe more of a philosophical one, which is obviously you have your employee onboarding, right? Which is happening when they initially join the business. But I think the concept of everboarding uh, is what we call it. So you have the onboarding and the ongoing uh, enablement or the everboarding um, is, is really critical, right? And I think part of that is understanding uh, and as if you are measuring and metricing your business correctly, you should be able to see along your customer journey and along your sales process, what are the gaps in our, what are the gaps in our system? Whether it be um, we don't have sufficient volume to be hitting our numbers, whether the ratios in between those aren't optimized enough. So I think if you, if you metric and instrument your business properly, you'll be able to easily identify where the gaps and where should we be investing in whether it be from an enablement perspective, a resource perspective, et cetera. That's, I find to be the most efficient path. Got it. Got it. And to get back to uh, the leadership kind of component of all this, in addition to, you know, this enablement thing where we, we launch training, but then we don't really know what good looks like or what success looks like other than just checking the box that we went to training. What are some other challenges that you feel like leaders are facing uh, when it comes to the sales team? Uh, well, I mean, we, if you just think about the past 18 months, Sean, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster, uh, right? I mean, I, I think for those that are in tech specifically, it's been really nutty. But I mean, when you look at the broader macroeconomic environment, it's been really crazy. So, I mean, if we think about um, if we think about COVID, for example, I mean, that was a big whiplash for people. It's people that were working in an office having to go remote, that, that that was a big obstacle to work through. I think another one, if if you didn't sell a, a product or solution that catered to that, I mean, business got really hard. Companies that embraced, I, I, have, I, I can't take credit for it. Actually, I think Rahm Emanuel said it originally, but never let a good crisis go to waste, right? I think organizations that are like trying to think through as obstacles come up, how can we... 
how can we maximize this particular situation or how can we help our customers be more successful in this situation? Like instead of being frozen and thinking like, oh crap, what do we do? Like, let's not let this crisis go to waste. How can we, how can we leverage this to accelerate the business? That's number one. I think as we go forward in the past 18 months post COVID, I mean, I think about the great resignation, right? And when all the, you know, the employees had most of the leverage and they were leaving. And, you know, at that time I was seeing people fresh out of college getting AE gigs for 250K a year. And it was, it was crazy, right? And then you think about just what's happened over the past six months. I mean, we've had seen such huge layoffs and people, you know, looking at 2023 as kind of dubbed the year of efficiency where we're not looking at hyper growth necessarily, but we're looking to, to focus on the other unit economics of the business, whether it be profitability or, you know, other efficiency metrics. So I think managing just the really quickly changing priorities, uh, as well as when you think about just individual sales, you know, going from you selling to whoever your target persona is to, I, I would say today in today's environment, you know, the, the CFO or the Office of Finance involved in almost every purchasing decision out there, right? So if you're not considering that and working through that as a part of your, your operating rhythm, you're going to get surprised, um, oh. right? And uh, I think another big one is, especially in tech, people are really scrutinizing every sort of spend, right? And so I think companies that were historically really strong at retention are really in for a big check right now. People are downsizing their, and so it's, you have to be willing to, you know, I think we were really playing offense over the past 18 months. And now in some ways we're playing defense and having to think a little bit differently about the world. When you think about like the frontline sales manager and building his or her team and that culture of that team, um, how does that affect some of these challenges that we're talking about, like retention and like how important is that to your your leaders that you have on the front lines at Insightly? Yeah, I think it's critical. And, you know, I, I think um, everyone's going through something, right? And I think in sales, you know, it's a really, it's a tough job, but I think leaders um, that have a lot of empathy, that care deeply about their people are the ones that are, are I think are going to really separate themselves over the versus, you know, leaders that are just, you know, purely focused on numbers that you know don't have uh, a lot of understanding. I, I think that's one thing that we, you, you really got to kind of hammer in on. I think a second element is, and this may be controversial, I suppose, uh, but I think it's something that I, I think about things a little bit differently. But one of the biggest things that I've seen that people leave their jobs, one is because they don't like their, their direct manager, but number two is they don't feel like they're making a big impact in the business. Oh. And so one of the core tenets of the cultures that I tried to build is that no one has the right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it, right? Like as a leadership team, we think we're pretty smart and we have pretty good ideas as we build these different processes um, that we want or strategies that we want to implement with the team. But if you're seeing something on the front lines with your customers, or if you've seen something be really more effective at another company, raise your hand, like, let's talk about it. Like, feel free to challenge kind of what we're talking about respectfully, of course, let's, let's not stop an all hands meeting and say, Hey, I think that's dumb, but you know, I think in the right environments, I I'm a big believer of, um, I think let's challenge, let's work together to find the best possible outcome, best possible solution. Um, 
And so that, that's that's a little bit different, but that helps people have input and feel like their their voices are heard and they're making a, a bigger impact on the business beyond just their quota, for example. Why do you think more people don't speak up in those kinds of situations where they feel like they have good experiences or good ideas or maybe think that business is going in the wrong direction? Even when leaders like yourself come forward and say, hey, we want to hear from you. Why do you think most people still don't raise their hand and say, I've got something to say? Uh, well, fear, I think, is probably the overarching uh, emotion. But I would say in most most cultures don't foster that type of open communication or that type of feedback loop. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to do your best to I mean, you have to you have to talk the talk. You have to say this is what you want, but you also have to walk the walk. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to empower people to, to know that their voices need to be heard. Right. And I think when people do have great ideas, you got to give them credit. Right. People love that kind of the I mean, you know, in, in, in marketing, we have attribution like I, there's got to be idea attribution as well. Like, let's not take someone else's idea and pawn it off as mine as the CRO, like give credit where credit is due. But it really I, I think it comes down to um, when people give you a suggestion or an idea, like listen to them, like acknowledge that and, and like dig into that a little bit more. And I think as you keep pushing back on people um, and you keep enabling them to do that, they'll start to get more and more comfortable, but it's gotta be a really proactive thing. And here's a little trick, Sean, like, like an easy one for if you're trying to build something uh, or if you're trying to enable that culture is uh -huh. let's say a salesperson working on a deal is running into some obstacle, right? It happens in almost every deal. So they come to you and say, hey, Sean, um, working on this, uh, I got a deal with ABC company, but we're hitting this hurdle what do you think we should do? So the easy button is to tell the person what you think, right? Well, I think you should do this. But sure. I think if you're trying to build that culture of, you know, like a, a lot more uh, transparent and collaborative culture, they, they say, hey, I got a, a deal with ABC company. What do I do? As the leader, I say, well, what do you think we should do? Right? Like enable your team to don't bring you problems, like bring solutions or bring alternatives, right? Think through multiple moves ahead, right? As the people closest to that particular problem or deal in that situation, they probably have the most context, right? And are probably in the best position to make a call, but they're coming to you as a leader to either validate that they're making the right decision or give you some feedback. But th that simple trick of, instead of just answering their question, ask them what they think. And then they'll talk about that. And then you start to have that dialogue versus them versus a ticket, which is I have this ticket. Please close this ticket for me. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And then if they don't, they don't know. And they say, I don't know. I don't know, David. That's what I'm asking. I don't know. What then you could still say, well, what, what would happen if you tried this? Right. And at least let them kind of play it out in their mind and kind of still feel like they're coming up with their own answers versus us just going, we'll just do this then. Right. Because guys like you, you've got a ton of experience. You probably know the right answer, uh, but kudos to you for not giving it to them when they can come up with it on their own. Or you can maybe nudge them in the right direction and they can discover it on their own. It's like little it's those micro decisions or those little moments that kind of stack mm -hmm. up to, to creating that culture. Right. I, I think culture is not one of those things that's built in a day. And it's like that's a really hard thing. But it's like these tiny dialogues that happen that you know, snowball to create that culture that you aspire to have. And so 
anyway, I'm a big believer in it. And not only that, it empowers your people to grow and scale in their careers, right? Because instead of coming to you with all their problems, they're now enabled and confident to be able to move forward and actually be problem solvers, right? You hired them because they were smart, talented people. Why not leverage that talent, right? Or or deploy that talent better. Yeah, I love that. Uh, As somebody with so much experience like yourself, what are some kind of common leadership myths or misconceptions that that you think are out there in the world and then you've realized through all your years of experience, hey, this actually isn't right at all. It's actually like this instead. Anything like that that you can think of you could share with our new leaders? Um, Yeah, I'd say... I'd say leadership, especially executive leadership, can be very lonely, right? Uh, And I don't think most people realize that. I think, you know, when you think about maybe your CRO, your CMO, whoever that is, you think about them as, I don't know, some exalted person or something like the quarterback of the football team, like they can do no wrong. When in fact, like, I mean, it's kind of one of those heavy is the, you know, heavy lies the crown sort of situations where you are bogged down with so much pressure and so much weight that often, you know, it it really rests on your shoulders that oftentimes, you know, it it can feel very lonely at times that you don't know who you can trust because sometimes people are coming to you and they have their own political aspirations or spins they're looking for. So, you know, I think when people look at that as these leaders, these executives are people too. And It's and they and they kind of need the same thing that other people need, but I think a lot of times they just look at them as these people that have made it, that have all the answers. And I think oftentimes it's you know they're still trying to work through the same kind of stuff, maybe just at a bigger level. And so that's one thing that I think surprises you is um, that I've noticed. And when I look back on leaders that I've kind of looked up to or, or um, that I reported to, is um, you know. oftentimes the good leaders are, they're still looking for that kind of that ear to the ground or that feedback loop, but it it can be lonely up there where you're trying to make these decisions on your own and, and, uh, and where that responsibility. With this idea of kind of it's lonely at the top or heavy lies the crown, you know, what keeps you motivated in, in avoiding burnout in these roles where you're out there and you're by yourself, but man, you know, everybody's still watching you. Like you're all alone, but everybody's watching everything you do. Um, how do you avoid burnout? Well, I think the first thing, and I would say an important thing to do for anybody in their careers is figure out your why, right? Figure out what motivates you. And I think the easy answer is for most people is money, but I think it goes beyond that because, you know, if you're fortunate enough to, to have a lot of success, you know, then it's got to be something else. Like, what is your why? What motivates you to do your best work in your career, right? And so um, I think if you have that, that helps when things get difficult to be able to kind of anchor back on that North Star as to what, why am I doing this in the first place? Why am I going through all this trouble and all this stress, right? And so that's usually step one that I try to that I try to kind of anchor on is if you don't understand your why or what motivates you, then when times get tough, it's going to be really hard to shake that. So take the time and figure that out for yourself would be number one. I think number two is, um, look, I, I think the concept of work like balance is is kind of a hard it's it's this may be a little bit uh, uh, controversial, but it's it's 
it's it's somewhat of a flawed approach, right? I think especially as you grow in your career, the idea of a balance sometimes can get out of whack. But I think Whoa. if you can do little things in your day, in your week to give yourself some me time. So that would be, you know, working out or maybe turning your phone off for the hour when you have dinner with your kids. I mean, it's, it can be really hard to do. I mean, trust me, it's, it's impossible. And I have to have my wife keep me in check, but it's like, turn your phone off and put over there when you're having you know, dinner with your kids. It's those little things that I think really help versus, you know, if you're just like, you can get back to it in an hour, but um, man, it's, it's a struggle. I, I don't, I don't know that anyone has like the perfect answer. You just, it's something that's just, you gotta be constantly, working through and prioritizing. And there's times that are really abundantly stressful that you got to lock in. And there's times that, that uh, maybe you can let the foot off the gas a little bit, but it's like, I like, that, I like that you brought up that work-life balance thing is because, you know, I hear people talk about that all the time, but I, I also see like CROs, CSOs, you know, CEOs, every time I go to a conference or whatever, they're, they're the ones that are on their laptop, you know, at nine o'clock in the bar answering emails or there, you know, it doesn't seem like there's very much balance there, but we always talk about it. And I think maybe the, the, uh, the idea that gets communicated is like, yeah, we say this, but in reality, we all know you got to, you're, you're answering emails on Sunday night. You're getting ready for Monday morning. You're, you know, you're working on the Saturday, you're traveling, you're, you're doing work on the airplane. So um, I like that you brought that one up because I've kind of always thought, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. I'm not, I'm not sure that really exists as much as we think it does, especially the higher up you get. Yeah. I mean, like I would not say in reality, yeah, it's, it's less of a work-life balance and probably more of a work-life harmony. Right. And you got to find a harmony that is, that is to the tune of your life. And that's going to be different for everybody, but I don't know that you're ever going to find an equitable balance Right. And I think yeah. the, especially as you get really senior, it's going to feel very out of balance. But you got to find a way to make sure you you're somewhat harmonious with the rest of your personal obligations. Yeah, I think how you said that is really apt. And, and because when you think of balance, you think of 50 50. Right. Like, right. It's got to be in balance. But the harmony doesn't always have to be in balance, but it does have to. Everything's got to work together. And as long as you're in harmony, what your family wants and it's working. Yeah, I actually had what um, am I? Uh, prior bosses, uh, Ryan Smith, uh, told me this once, and it was actually a really astute piece of advice, um, as the CEO of Qualtrics. And, you know, he was managing a lot of different things. And he, I just said, how do you keep that balance? And he said, I actually have a pretty simple formula, right? He said on Sunday night, I work through, like I, I, I you list out what are your different titles that you have in your life, right? So obviously you have your work title, but is it, you know, in my case it's, or, or it's husband, father, if you have, you know, religious obligations that you're into or, you know, whatever the things that are core tenants in your life is right. do a weekly planning session every single week. What do I have to do this week to be successful at that particular role in my life? Right. Mm -hmm. So if you think about as a father, you don't have to take your kid to Disneyland every week to be the father of the year. Right. Sometimes right. it's a little thing like let's make sure like maybe sometimes this week, let's take the kids to the park. Let's go get ice cream or something like that to be a good husband. You know, you don't got to be taking your wife to Hawaii every week. Right. Or something big like that could be something yeah. as simple as let's plan a date. Let's you know give her flowers or you know whatever that looks like. But right. as you think about all the different aspects of your life, just think about what's one thing I could do this week 
to be successful at that. And that will help kind of guide and make sure that you're prioritizing and giving time to that particular uh, to, to make a more well-rounded and harmonious life. So I thought that was like a good tip that I've, I've used over the years, especially as things get chaotic. Yeah, I like that. I just stumbled across this week um, some old Zig Ziglar stuff. And, you know, uh, for some of our younger listeners, they probably don't even know who that is, but that's like the founding father of sales training, if there ever was one. And he had a concept called the wheel of life. And it was this a similar concept of like all these different aspects of your life and are they in balance with each other? Meaning like, are, are each of them operating at a high level? Not necessarily balanced like we we're talking about 50-50. Uh, but, you know, he, he mentioned the different areas of your life, like spiritual, your physical, your marriage, your relationship with your children, you know, all that, your job, all that kind of stuff. And it's a similar concept. So uh, I really enjoy that. Okay. Uh, last question. The time just flew by here. So it always seems like... Uh, we didn't allow for enough time. But last question I always like to ask everybody is if you were dropped on a deserted sales island as a sales leader, okay, we, we just kicked you out of the plane, you parachuted in, you're, you have to survive on this sales island. What would be the one skill or the one tool or the one thing that you would need to have with you to be successful as a sales leader on that island? Ooh, I like that question. Um, I would say be mindful of your personal brand. That's probably where I would start. I, I think that for sales leaders or leaders in general, right, um, be the person that everyone loves and wants to work with. And actually, I think your question is even not so hypothetical. When you think about being dropped into an island, I mean, I would liken that to starting at a new company. Like, yeah. what's the playbook? Being a you know newly hired CRO or VP of whatever is you know, I think you have to start to build that relationship and, and be like, build that reputation, right. And that trust with all of the different cross-functional people that you're working with. Right. I'm a firm believer that sales and revenue is a team sport, right. There's no extra credit for closing a deal on your own. And so because you're going to have to work with so many people across the company, better build those relationships sooner rather than later. And, and you make in relationships, in business and in life, to me, is it's about deposits and withdrawals, right? If, if you are, if you're just constantly going to your legal team and making withdrawals, for example, or you're constantly going to this, like you have to be making deposits as well into that relationship, or else it's going to get out of whack. But listen, it's that's one of the most important and often neglected things that people do in their career is they're just so heads down on their quotas on whatever their objectives are, and they're neglecting the people element of the business, which is really kind of what separates the good from the great. So that's where I would start is um, building that personal brand, you know, keep in mind that relationships are a former currency and that's going to accelerate your personal trajectory as well as the companies and, and their success. Great. I love that. That's the, you're the first person that's answered personal brand. So it's always interesting to hear what people choose uh, to bring with them to the island. Uh, how can people connect with you? Is there anything that you'd like to promote while you're here? Yeah, so easiest way to connect uh, LinkedIn. I mean, probably LinkedIn is the easiest, and we can we can connect on uh, an email or something like that from there. So look me up on LinkedIn, David Osborne, um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> happy to be here, Sean. Hey, really great to have you. Thank you for spending some time with us today, David, and thank you for listening to the Frontline, a podcast dedicated to exploring the world of sales leadership. We invite you to continue the conversation we had with David today on LinkedIn. 
share your thoughts and experiences as a sales leader. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode where we'll continue to explore the front lines of sales leadership. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Sean, and we'll see you on the front line. Are you ready to take your sales team to the next level? Our team of world-class coaches can help, whether it be sales process, hiring rockstar sellers, or simply building your sales and sales leadership skills. The Sales Collective has you covered. Visit us today at thesalescollective.com.